Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 13. My name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released Jesus Center Daily, Daily Devotional. You can find it anywhere, Amazon. Go to the website I created for it, JesusCenterDaily.com. If you want to check out, you get like a free you know, 10-day download there. So you can taste and see if you want to. Just go to JesusCenterDaily.com for that. Otherwise, it does make like, you know, a really good post-Easter gift for someone, a friend or family member that you would like to um, nudge along their way to getting to know Jesus better uh, and getting to know him more intimately. Uh, this this devotional, for those of you who already have it, I I, th- I think this is fair to say that that it's a, a very surprising, unusual, and creative uh, way to approach getting to know Jesus as He really is. And this is the key to everything. N.T. Wright, the great theologian, said that uh, as long as we believe in the real Jesus that makes all the difference. And he's emphasizing there the and underlying there that a lot of people believe in a Jesus who's not really Jesus. So it's important to come to know him as he really is. And the only way to do that is to slow down because we are at a, a breakneck pace in the church when it comes to Jesus. We think we know everything about him already. So we blast through things that we don't understand because uh, we think we already have this narrative down. So the key to understanding and appreciating and even worshiping Jesus is to slow down. And so this daily devotional will help you do that. And it will help a friend or family member do that as well. So again, Jesus Center Daily, you can check it out at jesuscenteredaily.com if you want. This is the fifth episode in a new series that I'm calling Jesus People. And the premise is simple. We're just exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of his friends and his enemies. We all know that you can learn a lot about a person by studying the way that person impacts other people. You know, people leave influence and impact in their wake. So if we just pay attention to the people who love Jesus and the people who hated Jesus, because there's really not much middle ground around around Jesus. um, If we just pay attention to those people, we can learn a lot about the heart of Jesus from a different trajectory, from a, a surprising trajectory. So I'm going to start every podcast in this series off with this quote from Dr. Peter Kreef from Boston University. He's a professor there and a C.S. Lewis scholar. Um, and he wrote a book called Jesus Shock, which is quite good. Uh, it, it expresses the impact that Jesus had when he met people, both friends and enemies. And here's what he said. Christ changed every human being he ever met. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he's not met him at all. When you touch him, you touch lightning, which means you get a jolt. (laughs) And that's, I just love that description of Jesus. So in this episode, we're going to explore how the jolt of Jesus impacted 
two otherwise obscure men who happened to experience an extraordinary encounter with Jesus. And actually, I say two extraordinary, two otherwise obscure men, because that's how we've always believed these two people to be. But as I have dug into this deeper, there's quite a bit of evidence to say that it wasn't two obscure men that we're about to explore, um, that it was a man and his wife. So we know the name of one of these two men. His name is Cleopas. I hope I said that right. Cleopas. Um, and the other, the other person who was with Cleopas as they encounter Jesus on the road to Emmaus just after the resurrection of Jesus is unnamed. Uh, we don't know who this person is. And, and uh, in contemporary Christianity, we've always uh, assumed that these two people walking along the road to Emmaus are two male disciples. But there are a lot of scholars and historians who point out that that might not have been the case, that that might have been Cleopas and his wife. So let's call these two people, just for the heck of it, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. <laughs> and that's who we're going to focus on. So first, who are these people? Well, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, three days after his execution on the cross, two members, here's what we know, two members of his outer circle of disciples, meaning they're not part of the 12 disciples, but they are close followers of Jesus. They travel with him and they are with the 12 <clears throat> that day um, when the, uh, the empty tomb is first discovered. So two members of this outer circle of disciples are, are walking back home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And this is about a seven mile trip. So if you're in a car, pretty short drive. If you're walking, um, several hours, uh, that's how long it would take to walk to Emmaus, a little village that actually we don't know where Emmaus is in contemporary time now. Uh, scholars are not exactly sure where it was located. So it was just a small village that uh, long ago disappeared. But we know this is where they were walking to. And we know from scripture that one of the two is named Cleopas. And he's quite possibly, here's, here's where scholars have to guess a little bit. But they most believe that he's quite possibly the brother of Joseph, who is the earthly father of Jesus. So, so he's a he's an older man at this point. Um, may perhaps you could say he's middle aged, maybe younger. Um, quite possibly the brother of Joseph. And like I said, conventional opinion is that he's that this Cleopas is walking with another of the male followers of Jesus, but that person is unnamed. And so. Uh, as scholars have considered um, who was following Jesus and what was common back then amongst, especially someone of Cleopas's age, his likely age, um, that he would have been traveling with his wife. And it makes perfect sense that the two would be traveling back home. So, so many scholars have, have uh, weighed in that they think that this other unnamed person is most likely Cleopas's wife. And maybe uh, uh, another clue they pick up is that the person is not named, which often happened where the, if there's a husband and wife, the husband is named and the wife is not. Um, we know that this was a, a culture that uh, Jesus entered into where he uplifted women in very particular ways from their uh, sort of ignored state. They weren't even allowed to 
to be witnesses in a trial. There, in many ways, women were oppressed during this time, and one of those ways was that the men were named and the men recounted, but not the women. So that's another little piece of evidence as to why the other person is not named uh, walking along with Cleopas. And what we do know is that the two of them are very upset about Jesus' death. And now they've heard a new grief, which is that his body is missing from the, tr- from the tomb. So they've heard this from Mary Magdalene and the other women who arrive at the tomb, and also Peter and, and John who go to the tomb and come back and report that the tomb is empty. And they, they know that Jesus has said that he will rise again, but it's such an incredible, uh, unbelievable thing to put your arms around that they, it just doesn't make sense to them. The, the most sensical thing they can think of is that someone has taken away the body of Jesus from the grave. And, and even though the women have come back and Peter and John have come back and said that, you know, there's something happening here. That, uh, that it, this isn't just a grave robbing, there's something happening here. Many of the disciples, not just Thomas, by the way, just don't believe it yet. And it's clear from this conversation that the two are having on the road to Emmaus that they expected Jesus to redeem Israel. And they thought that didn't happen. With the death of Jesus, that dream had died. So they're heartbroken and they're confused and they're disoriented and they don't really understand who Jesus really is, that that is revealed as Jesus in some kind of disguised identity joins them on their walk and starts to ask these innocent and in retrospect, very playful questions to them. We discover that these two have held on to beliefs about the Messiah that make it hard to accept Jesus' true mission and purpose. They've, they've held on to an understanding of what the Messiah was coming to do and who the Messiah would be that doesn't now make any sense now that Jesus has been crucified. They, and now all of their dreams and hopes and what they thought they were a part of has just died with him. Um, so they're disillusioned and they're heartbroken and, and they don't know what to do now. Now, I think if you've grown up in the church, uh, whenever we look at the two on the road to Emmaus, we have this sort of tinge of condescension towards these two uh, because Jesus chides them for their lack of understanding, right? Uh, so given how close they were to him, why didn't they understand who he was better? So we kind of look down our noses at these, these two a little bit. There's a little bit of a tinge of that when we think about the two travelers, um, but I, here's something to think about. According to a recent Barna poll, almost all of us here in America have wonky beliefs about Jesus in one way or another. Let's, let's go through a few of these findings from the Barna poll. First, uh, here's, a, here's a little bit of interesting news, and I, I'd like to contrast this. The first thing they, they found was that the vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. So 92% of American adults say that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. Okay, so we start with that. If he was a real historical person, and we have real historical accounts of what he said and did, and we have quite a lot of those actually, given how far back in history this story is, but we have quite a lot of accounts of him, of what he said and did. And and we and nine out of 10 of us believe he's actually a real person. Then it behooves us to understand who that real person said he was. 
and who others said he was, because our actual beliefs about him diverge from those from from those descriptions of who he actually was. So, for instance, um, the second thing that this Barna uh, poll found was that younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. So Jesus says over and over again, repeatedly, every which way, that he is the Messiah, he's the Son of God. He is God himself. So most adults, not quite six in 10, believe Jesus was God, 56%. So think about that for a second. 92% of people believe that Jesus was a real person, but only 56% believe he was God. About a quarter say he was only a religious or spiritual leader like, you know, Muhammad or the Buddha. Um, and, but, and so so some say that he was just a spiritual leader. He wasn't really God. Uh, so that accounts for some of the discrepancy there. Millennials, they found, are the only generation among whom fewer than half believe that Jesus was God. Only 48% of millennials say that they think Jesus was God. And about one third of them say that <clears throat> instead Jesus was just a, a merely a religious or spiritual leader. Another seventeen percent of that of that figure they aren't sure what he was. <laughs> they they just don't know. Uh, so the third thing the Barnett Barnett poll found was that Americans are uh, divided on whether or not Jesus was sinless. Listen to this: about half of Americans agree, either strongly or somewhat. That while he lived on earth, Jesus was human and committed sins like other people, 52%. So again, let's go back. 92% believe he was a real person, but only 52% believe he committed sins. Again, a huge disparity between um, the reality of Jesus' life and what he said and what was prophesied about him and what people think about him. Huge gap between those two things. The fourth thing I just want to point out from the Barna poll is that people are conflicted between um, Jesus as their path or bridge to heaven and good deeds, doing good deeds, being a good person as their path or bridge to heaven. Um, the poll found that many American adults, despite the clear teaching of Jesus and then the clear teaching of Paul and Peter and John and others in the New Testament, uh, that Jesus is our only path, our only bridge to eternal life with God, despite this overwhelming message that that is the only way, um, many adults still believe they'll, they'll go to heaven as a result of their good works. This is one of those beliefs that is just, if you just scratch the surface of it, it's so fragile. Um, I, I, it's just shocking to me that this belief has, has hung on as much as it has amongst us, because you, there's so many questions arise from this. Well, how, how many good deeds are enough then? And most people like in the 90 percentile believe that they're basically a good person in the high nineties. That's what people believe about themselves that, and it makes sense that all of us basically believe we're a good person. So that means that uh, as long as we've met our own criteria for what being a good person is, we're, we're going to go to heaven. Uh, we, we think that the good outweighs the bad in us. That's basically the way we treat it. But is it a shifting line? Do we compare myself to another person? We often do that, don't we, uh, even casually? Um, and and uh, who's deciding then how much good is good enough? And 
if any bad is too much, then who would qualify at all? We don't really think through these kinds of kind of uh, lazy beliefs that we have, but we, as it turns out, have a lot of lazy beliefs about Jesus. So we're not that different for Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. That's what I'm trying to say. The fact that they don't quite get exactly who Jesus is, is no mark against them, I think, because even though they're close to him, even though we're close to him, we still hold on to beliefs and impressions and um, narratives about him that just aren't true. thought it'd be interesting to listen to a little bit of a scene from uh, where this, this Road to Emmaus conversation plays out, a scene from a BBC production called The Passion. Um, it it, uh, it uh, reconfigures or sort of brings to life this conversation that we find in Luke 24, 13 through 49. I'm just going to play a portion of it for you. This portion is when the two, now again, um, in this scene, it's two men traveling, and I'm suggesting that it's actually Cleopas and his wife, but uh, that this, this production handles this in the traditional way, and it's two men, two male disciples in the outer circle of Jesus traveling uh, on their way to Emmaus, and up comes Jesus to meet them. I'm just going to play a portion of this scene. It's about two minutes long. It was on the BBC, so obviously you're going to hear British accents. So everyone in the scene has a British accent. Uh, but the first part of this is really interesting to me. I think it's interesting how they handled this scene. Again, it features the, these two men who are uh, quickly joined by Jesus. Let's give a listen to this. Slow down. Slow down. We're far enough from Jerusalem. We're just... We're just two pilgrims on the road. If anyone asks, we were in Jerusalem for Passover. We we heard of this Jesus. We saw him preaching the temple, but we never saw him. Oh, Galilean, so maybe maybe we heard him preach. We heard he was from Galilee. Who's that you're talking about? Jesus of Nazareth. What about him? He was some sort of teacher. Some pilgrims thought he was the leader come to free us. So they said to us. He was condemned and handed over to the Romans. So he was crucified. And now they said he's come back to life. <laughs> <laughs> you don't believe the scriptures. I'll just say this. Isaiah wrote that the son of God will come to earth. You'll know human death at the hands of men. Surely Jesus told you these things would happen. I've heard such things. It's slow to believe. My brother's house is this way. Why don't you stop with us for some food? Come, come and eat with us. All right, there you have it. What happens after that in this scene is a little, it's a, it's not well reproduced as just audio. It's a, them eating together in their home in Emmaus and Jesus breaking bread in front of them and then pouring the wine into the, into a bowl and then dipping that bread into the wine. And then suddenly he transforms from a guy they don't recognize into Jesus. <laughs> it's a little bit of a hard transition in this scene and it'll be interesting. I'll mention the, the, uh, the new and very popular YouTube miniseries, uh, The Chosen, later on in the podcast, uh, 
my wife and I are binge watching the first season right now. And season two just came out. Can't uh, recommend this series more highly. The first episode uh, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it was mediocre, but it was uh, not fully satisfying. But every episode after that has been a revelation. It's, it's amazing. Uh, this series has people behind it who really do have really slowed down to understand the heart and personality of Jesus. And this is the best depiction of Jesus I've ever seen in any movie or series of any kind. It's just so well done. So I can't recommend The Chosen high enough, um, but I'm waiting to see how they will handle much later on this conversation on the road to Emmaus, because this is such a strange story. They don't recognize Jesus right away as he's talking to them, even though they had been close with him and traveled with him. Why don't they recognize him? We don't know. I'll try to address that at the end of the episode today. But what's interesting here to me, if you, if you hear this in this audio version of it, is the men are essentially afraid as they travel back from Jerusalem. And this makes perfect sense to me. This is why I like this scene. All of the disciples are afraid at this point. Jesus has been uh, captured, given a kangaroo court trial, and then executed in the most horrible way possible, and they all know that they could be next. Um, the point here that's, that, it's that uh, the religious officials and the Roman leaders are trying to do is quash any kind of rebellion that might happen, and they were part of the rebellion, so it would make perfect sense if you were a disciple of Jesus to to uh, distance yourself from him in light of what just happened to him. And the fact that he's, that his body is no longer in the grave, these two travelers on, on the road to Emmaus, Mr. And Mrs. Cleopas, um, they're well aware that the tomb is empty that morning. This throws another wrench into the works. What's going on here? Everything is unsettled and disorienting. They don't know what to think. All they know is that their lives could be in danger. And that's what you hear in this, in this recording as well. And so when Jesus, who they don't recognize, comes up to them, um, they're cautious. They want to make sure that whoever this stranger is, that that stranger is not maybe some secret agent of the Roman government or the Jewish leadership. They want to make sure that they're distancing themselves from their status as disciples. And so Part of it is that their, their caution is born of their misunderstanding of Jesus's life and mission. So uh, they, they simply don't understand that all of this is part of the strategy that the Trinity concocted long ago to, to invite um, uh, the beloved human beings back into intimate relationship with God. And so uh they, they just don't get um, how that mission is going to be played out. So Jesus tells them, basically, you don't understand anything. <laughs> and then he walks them through from start to finish a scriptural narrative um, or context for clarifying the role and the mission of the Messiah and tries to point out that all of it points to Jesus. Um, now, we don't get to hear this. Oh, it wouldn't have been so good if we'd had a gospel account of everything Jesus said, but this is like a, a, you know, probably let's just be conservative here. What Jesus said to these men in this conversation going forward probably was about two hours long. So 
he walks through all of scripture with them, helping them to see how all of it points to Jesus in the end. He's giving the context that they need to clarify the role and the mission of the Messiah because they don't get it. Um, as far as I know, no film or video effort has ever had the boldness to take a stab at what Jesus might have said to these two. It just says in the scriptural account from Luke 24, um, uh, all, this is all it says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Wow. So you can imagine why that might have taken um, two hours long. Uh, so that the, these the, 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 the let me back up here a little bit. The the people who produced the Jesus film, which is um, a really well done film about Jesus that's been used in evangelistic efforts around the world. It's been now shown to countless millions of people around the world. The same people who produced that film also tracked through the Old Testament prophecies that point to, to Jesus. And these are likely the same prophecies that Jesus references to Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas on the way to Emmaus. Likely, given, you know, again, where they were walking to and how long it took, he need, Jesus needed that much time to walk through all those prophecies. Now, we're not going to take that long, but I'm going to highlight some of the 55 prophecies targeted by the Jesus film producers. Now, scholars count more than 300 total, but the producers of the Jesus film decided to focus on just 55 of them. And um, that's plenty, by the way. I'm going to skip through these 55 prophecies and just try to imagine yourself as in the shoes of Mr. or Mrs. Cleopas on the way to Emmaus, and you have two hours spent with this man that you don't yet know as Jesus, and he's walking you through what I'm about to walk you through. Now, Jesus would have done it in a very artful, um, flowing and fluid and surprising way. I'll do my best <laughs> walking through these 55 prophecies, but it will not take two hours. As I mentioned, it will take far less than that, but I, I want you to get the feeling of what this would feel like to be one of these two. So I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction to these prophecies first, because there's some interesting, um, interesting perspective on the role of prophecy and Jesus and why it's so remarkable that the Old Testament has so many specific prophecies that point exactly to Jesus. But um, so I'm going to read a little bit from that intro in just a second. But I just wanted to say a little by the way here, um, this uh, examining of Old Testament scripture and how it points to Jesus is, is exactly why my, uh, my writing partner, Ken Castor, and I created the blue letters in the Jesus-centered Bible. The blue letters are uh, more than 600 places that Ken and I isolated in the Old Testament that point uh, directly to Jesus in some way or another. And we've highlight, we highlight each one of these passages in blue type, and then we write a little blue uh, caption box next to each one that explains the connection that we found. We could have had far more than 600 if you wanted to. We just, it was getting to be so many, the Bible was going to be huge. Uh, this, this, this version of the Bible, the Jesus-centered Bible would have been too big to sell because <laughs> we it would have just been expanded by all of this additional material. But um, this is why 
we decided to highlight these places in the Old Testament that point to Jesus so that no matter where you're reading in scripture, you're always aware that the purpose of the narrative of the Bible is to point to Jesus. So let's uh, take a look at what uh, the producers of the Jesus film discover. And I'm going to read a little bit from the intro first. All right, here's how this starts. Some scholars believe that there are more than 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. These prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling even a handful of them, let alone all of them, is staggeringly improbable, if not impossible. Peter Stoner, chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College, was passionate about biblical prophecies. So with 600 students from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Stoner looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus, just eight. They came up with extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled, and then considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of these prophecies. The conclusion to his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy these eight prophecies was just one in 10 to the 17th power. In the uh, journal Science Speaks, Peter Stoner described this probability like this. This is Peter Stoner talking here. Let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mess thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. Isn't that amazing? I love that visual image. And that's just eight of these prophecies. <clears throat> and, we, and here the Jesus film was targeted 55. And overall, there's more than 300 all of them fulfilled in Jesus. So let's let's walk through some of these. First, we'll start out with some that are prophecies about Jesus' birth. Um, one of the first ones is that all of the nations will be blessed through Abraham's lineage. And of course, we know that uh, Jesus is part of that lineage. And the second thing is that God's covenant would be with Isaac's ancestors. And he is also one of Isaac's uh, descendants, of course. And that the nations would be blessed through Jacob's offspring. We know that Jesus was uh, one of the descendants of Jacob. And that the, the scepter of the Messiah, the scepter of the king, would come through Judah. And of course, Judah is part of gene Jesus' genealogy as well. There's also a prophecy about David's offspring that would, that would uh, someone in David's offspring would, uh, will have an eternal kingdom meaning that their, their kingdom isn't physical and that they would have a reign boundaried by years, but that their reign would be eternal. And uh, so, of course, Jesus is one of David's offspring and his reign is eternal. And Jesus said it over and over again, 
my reign will never end. Um, another prophecy is that a virgin would give birth and that the, the, the baby born would be called Emmanuel or God with us. And of course, a virgin did give birth to Jesus. Another prophecy was that the Messiah will end up in Egypt. And of course, Mary and Joseph uh, fled uh, Nazareth and went to Egypt to escape um, the purge of Herod um, that ended up uh, killing uh, all of the young men uh, below the age of three, if I'm remembering this correctly. So they fled to Egypt. So another prophecy that was fulfilled there, of course, we all know that there was a prophecy in Micah um, that the Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And of course he was. Um, now we move into prophecies about Jesus' ministry. Um, one of the first was that the, the Messiah's ministry would destroy the devil's work and uh, all over the place. Uh, um, well, here's a, here's a place in 1 John 3, 8 that, uh, that fulfills this prophecy. It basically says this was part of Jesus' job description, destroying the devil's work. In, John, in 1 John 3, 8, he's, he writes, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Uh, and Jesus went about confronting the devil's work constantly. So another prophecy about Jesus' life and ministry was that he'd have a sinless, blemish-free life and ministry. Yes, true of Jesus. And that the Messiah would be humbled in order to serve mankind. And uh, this is an interesting little passage in Hebrews about the humbling of the Messiah. In put, and this is from Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. At present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Another prophecy would be that Jesus would become the perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice once and for all, and that he would preach righteousness to Israel. Um, and of course, Jesus started out his ministry by preaching to the Jews in Israel, and that Jesus would teach in parables. Uh, just listen to this prophecy from Psalm 78, 1 through 2. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. And of course, Jesus was always teaching and speaking in parables. Um, there was also a prophecy that foretold that Jesus' parables would sometimes fall on deaf ears. And of course, they did. Jesus said so himself that often the stories he told were not understood by the people he was talking to. Uh, Old Testament also prophesied that the Messiah would be a stone that causes people to stumble, a stumbling stone. In 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8, here's what Peter, um, the rock, says. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So he's just describing the impact that Jesus had. And of course, Jesus pointed, pointed to this prophecy himself. He called himself the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Um, so he specifically embraced that prophecy as well. Um, another prophecy was that his ministry would begin in Galilee. And of course it did. 
and that he would draw the Gentiles to himself, uh, which was obviously a hugely controversial thing that Jesus did from almost the very almost the beginning of his ministry. He, he started expanding his message out to the Gentiles. This is what one of the things that really angered the religious leaders at the time. There was also a prophecy that Jesus would have a miraculous ministry, and we know the gospel accounts of what Jesus did were full of miracles. You can't hardly turn a page in the gospels without finding Jesus involved in some miracle or another, and that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner, and we know in this case it was John the Baptist, and that he would be a quote-unquote gentle redeemer of the Gentiles. And of course, in the early church that we see in Acts, the church immediately expands to reaching out to Gentiles because Jesus specifically wanted to break down those barriers. And in fact, uh, one of the post-resurrection encounters Peter has with Jesus is when Jesus uh, kind of chides him and prompts him to expand his vision for who the good news is for, expanding it outside of the Jews to all of the Gentiles. It was a major tipping point. The Old Testament also prophesied that Jesus would be despised and rejected, that he would set captives free. And of course, Jesus points to this very passage when he announces his public ministry, that he's come to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. It also says the Messiah will have a throne that is everlasting and that the Messiah will bring an end to sin forever. And this is the, this is the point at which Many of those following Jesus misunderstood why he was doing what he was doing. It wasn't to uh, it, it wasn't to establish an earthly kingdom and drive out the Romans. It was to bring an end to sin. I also prophesied that Jerusalem would rejoice as the Messiah enters upon a donkey. And of course, we know on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and that he'd be be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver. Um, uh, uh, this prophecy comes from the book of Zechariah. Here, here's, here's where that specifically shows up. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. That's where that prophecy comes from. And of course, Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver to betray him. Um, it, it also says in the Old Testament that the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist, would come in the spirit of Elijah, and that's exactly how John the Baptist was described. Now, just to, to close off here, some prophecies about Jesus' death and resurrection. The, the Old Testament prophesied that Christ would be our Passover lamb. It would take the place of the temporary sacrifice for sin as a permanent sacrifice for sin. And like the Passover lamb, None of Jesus' bones would be broken on the cross, and that was particularly pointed out that unlike the other criminals uh, crucified next to him, they broke nothing on Jesus because he had already died. Um, it also, the Old Testament also prophesies that, the, that Jesus' blood would be spilled for our atonement and that he'd be lifted up and everyone who looked on him would live and that he would rise again from the dead after three days, um, but also that he would be forsaken, that, that those uh, who had been following him and if professed their love for him would forsake him at the moment. And of course, we know that happened, except for a few women that stayed at the cross along with John. It also prophesies that the Messiah would be scorned, that his suffering would include thirst, 
that they would pierce his hands and feet, that they would cast lots for his clothing, that the Messiah would cry out, into your hands I commit my spirit, which of course is the last words of Jesus on the cross, that everyone would abandon him, and that they would then plot to kill the, the religious leaders and the Roman authorities would plot to kill his anointed, that the Messiah would be quiet before his accusers, and of course he was quiet before Pilate, that his anointed would not see decay in the grave. And of course, those three days in the cave, his body did not decay. He was resurrected in bodily form, that the Messiah would be abandoned by those closest to him, and that he would ascend into the heavens to distribute gifts to the people. And the primary gift, of course, is the Holy Spirit, that on the cross, Jesus' thirst would be quenched with vinegar and gall. And that is exactly what happens in Matthew 27, 34. It says, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Um, the resurrection again was predicted in Psalm 118, 17 through 18. It says, I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Um, it also is prophesied in Isaiah that the Messiah will conquer death, but that he would be mocked and abused. Um, on his way to his execution. And finally, a, a couple of prophecies about Jesus' role in the church, that God would be raising up a prophet that's like Moses, except different, that his, that his atonement, his leadership, his redemption um, would be permanent and spiritual, that God would also raise up a faithful priest who does his will, and that the Messiah would judge the world justly. Um, in Acts 17, 31, here's, here's what Luke says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And of course, that the Messiah would have authority over all judgment and that the Messiah would pour out his spirit and that the Messiah would usher in a new covenant. Well, there you have it, 55 prophecies all of them pointing in a specific way to Jesus. Um, it's remarkable. We Again, if we go back to what I said to you about um, Peter Stoner, who looked into the probabilities of just eight of these coming true in the, in the, in the life of one person is almost uh, incredible to embrace. It, it seems impossible that all 55 would all point to Jesus in this specific way, let alone the more than 300. So, so this is likely some of what, of, of what Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas heard along the way. And after they heard this, we'll pick up in verse 28 here. Here's what happens. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
Well, they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So he did for them what he did for the two on the road to Emmaus. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So that's what happens after this uh, Emmaus walk. Jesus suddenly appears to the rest of the disciples, and then he goes over all of the scriptures again for them. He recontextualizes everything. Uh, and I think it's important to pay attention in this story to the two uh, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas who, looking back on their time with this stranger along the road, say, it weren't our hearts burning during this time. And at one point when Jesus appears to be going, going on and not following them on to Emmaus, they strongly urged him to follow them. They were magnetically drawn to this person. And though they could not recognize him for some reason, they, re they did begin to recognize this magnetic pull in them as the same one that they experienced with Jesus prior to the crucifixion. So, uh, the, these two, though we don't understand why they didn't recognize him, um, felt in their hearts this was who Jesus really is. They, they were so drawn to him that they had to have him continue along the way with them. So how, in the closing off here, how do we explain their inability to recognize Jesus at first? And why do they suddenly recognize him now? Um, well, one thing we can say is that post-resurrection here, for many people, including Mary Magdalene, they don't recognize Jesus right away for some reason. Now, the way that films and series have tried to portray this is literally changing the way he looks. I'm not sure myself what happened here. All I know is that when you sometimes when you see somebody in a context that you're totally not expecting them to be in, um, it's, it's quite possible that you don't recognize that person right away. And Jesus may have done something to um, sort of cloak his, 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 uh, his physical appearance a little bit. Maybe he was wearing a cloak over his head. And maybe he took it down when he uh, came to eat bread with the two, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. We don't know for sure. I don't think he suddenly had a face change situation. <laughs> I think it was something else. And maybe it was simply that Jesus... Uh, uh, in a spiritual way, blinded their eyes so that he, they couldn't immediately recognize him. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that the heart always knows. We can't, we can't see and touch Jesus, obviously, but, we, but our hearts can experience him. Just as these two on the road to Emmaus, their hearts were experiencing the heart of Jesus. They knew something in their heart about this man that they did not recognize. The same is true for us. As we get close to Jesus, though we can't touch him, 
We can know him by paying attention to the way our heart is impacted by all of him. So the closing question here is simple for all of us. If someone stopped you today and asked you to explain who Jesus is, the same way Jesus asked these two on the road to Emmaus to explain who Jesus is, how would you describe him? What would you say? Whatever you would say, your answer reveals your intimacy, how much you've slowed down to really appreciate and and understand the wonder of him. So I highly encourage you again to you can go to YouTube or just get the, the app for the chosen on your phone or on your computer so that you can, if you haven't yet watched it, binge watch the entire season one of the chosen. And then you can start watching the new episodes of the chosen that were just the first one was released on Easter day, season two. I can't recommend highly enough this as a way of trying to embrace and understand and appreciate the, the true impact that Jesus had of those around him, this will really help to watch this series. So I, I highly encourage you to go there and watch it. And I'll put a link to the series on our uh, podcast page. Just go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season six, episode 13, and you'll see links to what we've talked about today. As easy as that. This is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next time.